Hello, and welcome to the first English Network podcast of 2019, where today you are joining myself, Ted. And me, Alex. And today we have in store for you the uh, depressing delights of exposure by Wilfred Owen. So, uh, new year and new me, but in many ways some things never change. So we will still be going to Al as our history man in the spot. Al, what can you tell me about Wilfred Owen well, in the context broke, of this poem? Don't fix it. I should say if it isn't broken. Um, anyway, so context of this poem um, is very rich. Wilfred Owen is the only poet in the anthology who actually experienced combat. Um, and we, as you know, there's a lot of poets who explore themes around combat. However... Wilfred Owen has a certain amount of credibility, um, probably above all of all of his um, fellow poets in the anthology, only because he he actually went through all of these experiences and they're, they're written firsthand. Mm. Uh, so he fought in World War One. Uh, he was born born in Shropshire, joined the Manchester Regiment, fought in the Somme, um, experienced physical wounds, experienced shell shock, which we now understand as um, post traumatic stress disorder, um, and his. His whole um, theme, which runs through his poems, is it's all about revealing the true uh, horror, the futility, and the and the pure nightmare um, of of fighting in a war. So, World War One context, um, we know that Britain was fight uh, Britain fought um, primarily against Germany in France and Belgium um, in these kind of like very attritional uh, circumstances, talking trench warfare, very slow. um, And then when there was offensive, it was very bloody. Um, Mm. It's it's mechanized war. That was for the first first kind of total mechanized war in history. Um, And all the kind of the testimonies of what that was like from soldiers and people who witnessed it was it was pure carnage a lot of the time. Um, and I would just encourage you, we've mentioned it before, but if you go, if you watch um, They Shall Not Grow Old, uh, the Peter Jackson yeah. um, documentary, basically, but with colorized footage, with real testimonies of the soldiers, you get, you get a sense of, of um, what, this, what this, experience, this experience was like. Um, and also the idea of when, when soldiers are in circumstances like this, which I think comes across in Owen's poetry, is this idea of their powerlessness and their sense of disconnect from the, the mission, the idea, the, the idealism behind the war. Um, and I think World War I is, is especially true, and, and less so than, say, World War II, where it had like a clear, um, almost like a fight Threat against invasion, evil. And yeah. It was, yeah, and, it was, and it was obviously fighting against Nazism, and it's kind of like a lot easier for people to kind of psychologically get behind. World War One is is often seen as a kind of like a, a tragic waste of life. Not that World War Two wasn't a waste of life, but it's that it's that it's a um, an there didn't to be conflict. Yeah, and yeah. It, and I mean there are even theories that um, like kind of counterfactual theories that says if uh, if if Britain didn't get involved in World War One, uh, World War Two never would have happened, mm-hmm. and it would have been a kind of like a smoother twentieth um, century than it ended up being. Um, but regardless, we're looking at if we're looking at kind of like similarities in contextual points. We we know that when we looked at bayonet charge. Uh, Ted Hughes talks about the cold clockwork of stars and nations um, when he talks about when his with a soldier that, that he's kind of describing um, has that kind of moment where he wakes up and realizes that he's he's kind of been forced into this by fate or destiny, but he, regardless, he has no control over anything that he's doing. And uh, and you can imagine that Owen probably felt the same, and it seems to come through in his in this poem and other and that other frustrations. Yeah, frustration and disillusionment and disconnection. Um, and 
And I think that is something that's uh, particularly important to recognise with Owen as he tragically died during the war. So not only did he, did he write all his poetry during the war, uh, he also died during that, that same war. And he died a week before Armistice Sunday. And if we're talking about the kind of the, the futility or the waste of life, you know, the part, some of the fiercest fighting took place after the war was essentially over, when Germany was ready to surrender, they were just discussing the terms of that surrender. Um, and these decisions were made by old men in quiet rooms in, in, in negotiations, essentially, to say, well, we're going we're to keep the pressure on to make sure we get the best terms possible. Mm-hmm. We're going to keep attacking, we're going to keep fighting. And we're talking about the last day, thousands of men were killed on the last day and the war was over there was nothing to fight for it was simply keep that keep, stay in that state of war um, in order to keep the pressure on their diplomats I suppose it's a situation where the, the human cost becomes um, well some, like a, something that's put down on a sheet they don't really consider yeah. it yeah. well exactly and I, and I think Owen again is uh, making sure that, he, that we see the human side of that the human cost of that, that kind of situation um, so finally, just look at it. I think it's important to nod towards some of Owen's other poetry. Many of you will probably come across uh, his, I would think his most famous poem, which is um, Dulce Decorum Est. So it's a poem which is all about the, it's basically like a vicious, blistering attack on propaganda, war mm-hmm. propaganda, um, which says that to, to die for your country is a sweet and honourable thing. Um, and Owen calls that a lie. He talks about the the kind of, horrific things that he saw uh, especially in uh, centered around um gas attacks in world war one um and this poem exposure is kind of an extension of that message not so much the the horrific horrific violence of war um but the other side of it which is the the extended periods of um you say boredom um or of just kind of like nothing happening. You get the sense that they're kind of in a, in purgatory almost, that they're not, it's not like it's a peaceful, calm and enjoyable point of the war, but neither are they um, in kind of like full-blooded contact with the, with the enemy either. Um, and that in itself has, clearly has a very clear physical, uh, emotional strain. Mm-hmm. So I, th- I think, you know, it's really important that when you're looking at this poem, <coughs> context is extremely important for it. Um, Arguably more so than any of the other poems in the anthology, and that this you know this was, I think, a, a deeply political poet who was very much motivated by the circumstances he was in, who was writing in very unique historical circumstances. So I think you know, Al's obviously given you a lot of information about the context there, and you need to make sure you're able to distill that down and get across the key points. But we do think it's really important you understand about the the unique context of this war, the fact it was the first kind of very modern war where technology had this ability to to you know, wipe out thousands within minutes, um, you know, that uniquely bloody nature of World War One, and the, the frustrations of many of the, particularly many of the middle-class officers in the front line and how they felt that disconnect that Al so brilliantly described. <clears throat> I think for me, one of the things I really like about this poem is that it does get across the experiences and voice of soldiers on the front line in a really authentic way. You know, when we look at Wilfred Owen, it's important to remember this is a soldier who experienced the bloodiest battle in Britain's history. The Battle of Somme, Britain lost 420,000 men. Far and away our most you know, catastrophic ever <clears throat> loss in a war. And this Wilfred Owen was there in the front lines experiencing that. You know, he experienced shell shock. But he experienced this and was you know, committed to a hospital where he received counselling for it, where he met Siegfried Sassoon, another anti-war poet, and that really kind of unleashed this political animal within him. And as a poet, he was so motivated to 
share this authentic voice he had about what it was like, but also to try and bring an end to this madness, to this suffering, and make people realise that war is not something that's sweet and right. It's it's something that is has this catastrophic impact on these innocent young men who he was in charge of as as an officer, and you know many young men who he led to their death doing his duty. So I just love the kind of the authentic. You, know, you talked about the word credibility, but his his the pain comes off the page in a really convincing, realistic manner, and it's so easy to to get swept up in in his agony here because it is yeah. so it's so real and it's so visceral. I think definitely. Um, yeah, so let's uh, let's dive into the poem then. So I'm just going to look at a few lines in the first stanza to start us off. And as we know, I'm a big fan of the first line in any poem. I think it always carries enormous significance. So if we look at the first line in this poem, our brains ache in the merciless iced east winds that knife us. So straight away, you know, the first word in this poem is R. And I think it's no mistake that when we look at this first stanza, we see the use of the word R and we see the use of, um, I think later on, the weird we keep awake. So there's this idea of, of a collective. This idea of you know, that plural personal pronoun R and then the, you know, the, the collective pronoun we. This idea that these, these men on the front line are all together in this experience. They share this bond of pain and suffering and agony and loss. And while, you know, earlier we were talking about that disconnect from society, they are united in the way they have been kind of um, removed from society. They're united in the shared trauma, which no one else can really understand, but which actually brings them together. And it's quite an interesting subversion. You know, there's a famous line in one of Shakespeare's um, plays, you know, we band of brothers, we lucky few, you know, we're so lucky to be together. Now, Wilfred Owen would definitely not consider the soldiers lucky to be together, but he does think they're united in the horrors that they experienced. And that in some, if you're looking for a shred of hope from this poem, I think perhaps Wilfred Owen is giving it to us there in those first few lines that while they are in pain, they're in pain together. So I think that, you know, that word are, and in the second line, the word we, those kind of collective uh, pronouns, I think that, that's really, really important. A few words later, ache. So straight away in the first line, we have this tone of pain, this tone of agony, this tone of loss and, and you know, physical pain, again, that's being really evoked in this poem. Um, and then we see that then another important idea in the first line as well, the fact that the, the east winds are described as merciless. So clear personification there, you know, the wind cannot make a decision to show mercy or not show mercy. So we've got several key things in this first line. We've got the collective pronoun or collective personal pronoun R. We've got this kind of idea that that the personification of this weather is something that's merciless, something that whilst they're suffering, whilst they're dying, the weather kind of just is the last one to stick the knife in. It's not Mm -hmm. enough that they're experiencing shell shock, that they're seeing their friends die. Here's the weather to kind of run through the very bones of them and chill them to the core. I think there's something interesting there in in, in terms of we've got um first of all he talks about brains instead of it doesn't say that their heads ache, it's their mm-hmm. brains ache and that suggests something more um it's more to do with almost consciousness, not just physical um sensitivity. Yeah. Um but also we we've got the different words. So ache it's a specific form of pain, isn't it? Something that's chronic, that yeah. kind of like it's just dull and in the background and constant, like it's constantly there. 
Um, but then also we've got this idea that the winds themselves, are the, this idea that they knife them, or um, it's really aggressive. It gives you, yeah, it gives you, yeah. I mean, and, and that in itself, and like we talk about um, this personification of, of wind, and we can use that tender vehicle ground structure just as, e- as readily as we can use it for a simile. Um, well, what does it mean to knife? So we've got this idea of aggression, we've got this idea of uh, violence, this murderous nature, but also it's that it's the it's the image of that cold steel, that mm-hmm. bitter steel that cuts through flesh, that cuts through bone. Um, that is kind of like it, it's impossible to defend against. Yeah, and I think that's just uh, an, an interest in the in the first line. You, you almost get a summary of what it's like to be um, in that situation. You've got you've got chronic pain that comes with with the, with um, boredom and the conditions and the and the con- and the death that's surrounding you, and then the, the sharp kind of points of conflict um, and of agony, which is shown through this this verb that knife us. Absolutely, and I mean there. <laughs> To be quite frank, there's you could just do your language analysis for this poem on that first line. You know, he really does effectively create this tone from the very beginning. Now, as it continues in the stanza, we also see the adjectives uh, wearied. In the second line, wearied, we keep awake. And in, in the fourth line, worried by silence. And these are important, again, at conveying the the nature of the suffering of these soldiers. They're constantly fretting. They're constantly concerned by kind of silence. Your silence should be something that provides comfort and bliss and sleep. For them, it merely is the promise of more threat and danger to become. They wait for the silence to be silence to be disturbed by the enemy. Wearied, we keep awake. You know, they're, they're trying to stay awake, but obviously they're kind of they're physically tired, they're mentally tired, they're exhausted. So in this first stanza, you know, those adjectives really convey the, the you know, this this idea of the ceaseless suffering and misery of these soldiers. Um, and then it finishes on on you know one of the most arguably well no the most important line in the poem uh, hence it being repeated so often the structural point there but nothing happens so they they're in agony they're in pain they're in misery they're together yes they are together but this misery never ends and it doesn't end for two reasons well it doesn't end for many reasons but one of the reasons is that they don't die that actually for them death would be a reprieve from the suffering but. These, these soldiers in this situation are the ones who are still alive. So the misery continues. The other reason why nothing happens is that no one comes to save them. The great British public, the people who sent them to war, are not ending their suffering. This sense of abandonment to the elements, to the forces, to the, to the enemy they face. No one is coming to save them. But nothing happens. And this is a line that we're going to look at again later on in the poem. But in this instance, the first stanza, they're in pain, they're in suffering, but nothing happens. There's not the sweet escape of death, nor the reprieve offered them by Britain changing its mind and saving them from this horrendous situation. Yeah. <clears throat> and then you go into the second stanza, um, watching we hear the mad gusts tugging on the wire. Um, this kind of starts to explore the, the well, it extends that fear. Um, I think what we were just describing then, we're talking about worried by silence. Um, it's they're, they're kind of suspended in this constant state of, of tension, um, of uncertainty. And it's almost as if they want it to go one way or the other, either for it to end in peace, but they'd actually probably relish a fight as well. It's that kind of like you, just being stuck there is a very exhausting position to be in. And I feel like in this stanza, it starts to, the, the kind of psychological strain starts to show because you start to see, he describes it in quite haunting imagery. So we see um, that they hear mad gusts tugging on the wire and that in itself gives this image of, of some ghostly form. It's something that's... Um, something that's malevolent and mad and and, and merciless like we mm-hmm. saw before um, and almost like trying to break through it's something that's there's always there a constant presence which they can never escape 
Um, and then they compare it to the twitching agonies of men among its brambles, and we get this image of, of men dying in the in the barbed wire, being caught up, being shot. There's, there's this idea of them they're, they're in their death rows, screaming with this image of of pure agony and pain. And then it, again, it, it, it goes from something like the immediate, so what they're what they're seeing in front of them or feeling around them to this distant um, north, where it says northward incessantly the flickering gunnery rumbles and it's far off like a dull rumour of some other war. So the, the huge guns, the artillery in the distance, it, it's still flashing, it's still rumbling, it's constant, but it seems to have no immediate impact on them. They're stuck in this, almost in this bubble. They, they're surrounded by these, these haunting sounds, the mad gusts, the screeching, and yet far off there's a rumour of some other war. Um, so again, this this really starts to hammer home that message of disconnect, that they feel left in the dark, they feel almost like the war has left them behind and they're left to die. So I said before about purgatory and this this imagery is similar to kind of like literary and artistic descriptions of purgatory where you're you're in a state where you can you can never find any kind of peace. Um, it's never it's a it's a holy um like dull, incessant ache. There's no resolution. There's yeah. no kind of. It's just this constant in between, never exactly. arriving, never. Yeah, and I feel like that's that's shown by this this rumor of another war, as mm-hmm. if the war has moved on, as if they they've been left behind, um, and they have no real purpose. There's nothing. There's nothing for them to do there. They just sit there um, in the cold and the wet, and they and they they're dying slowly. And the, and then just to finish off that stanza, you know, we have this rhetorical question. You know, what are we doing here? I think the, the use of questions in this poem is really, really interesting. And we, we ourselves need to ask the question, well, why are these being asked? So what are we doing here? Is it that this question is actually being directed towards you, the reader? And there's a confrontational element of like, what, why have you sent us here? Don't forget, this poem would have been read by people, you know, kind of during the war, immediately after the war. What, what are we doing here? Why did you send us here? There may be the other element of actually that this was someone who signed up under the the kind of the... The, the wave of patriotism that swept across the nation and maybe here where Owen's actually saying I thought I knew why we're here but actually why are we here? L- literally why are we here? Yeah. Or maybe this this frustration of he knows why they're there he knows how this you know Wilfred Owen a very educated man he knows how the cold clockwork of nations might work and why he's there in this moment but even though he knows that he finds no comfort in there there's that sense of frustration of what are we doing here? What's the point of this? Fundamentally this achieves nothing. Our death neither brings the war closer to its end or, or achieves anything of meaning. So this is all pointless suffering. And I think we get that sense of frustration um, at, at this question here. And there's all those different interpretations. And we've got several questions that are kind of asked throughout this poem. And each one, I think, provokes you to consider, well, why is he asking that question? Who's this for? For the reader, for him, for his own frustration? Um, it's not entirely clear. Um, and after that, we're you know, just looking at the third stanza now. And we've got this first line, the poignant misery of dawn begins to grow. Now, Wilfred Owen, when he started out as a poet, didn't really write much about the war. He was interested more in the work of Keats and he was interested more in kind of uh, images of nature and kind of um, these images of beauty, etc. And what's interesting about this, this opening line here, uh, this 
third stanza, the poignant misery of dawn begins to grow. Now, Al's a big fan of his tenor vehicle grounds um, kind of analysis. So if we think of um, dawn here, we kind of think of the positive associations we might have with it. It's seen as something that represents hope, seen as something that represents new life, new beginnings, a fresh start. You think of kind of the birds singing in the trees or all this kind of, you know, you think of Disney movies, all these lovely images. But then, well, hold a second, the poignant misery of dawn begins to grow. The poignant misery of dawn, that dawn for them represents a poignant misery, not just unhappiness and suffering, but a really sharp form of unhappiness, one that kind of cuts through all the other noise of war, that despite everything that's going on, despite the fact they're cold, despite the fact they're fearing for their life, they're miserable. That's the most important thing. This misery is poignant. And this dawn represents this perpetual cycle of misery. It's perpetual nature that it's happening again dawn represents another day of suffering another day of this tedium another day of this waiting for something to happen but of course nothing happens and that really subverts our almost romantic expectations of what a dawn should represent and and there's even the kind of the kind of slightly chilling line it only begins to grow so Mm -hmm. this idea this misery is going to kind of extend and fester and you know like a cancer spread throughout the rest of their their day and it's just quite a shocking idea to associate misery with dawn in that way, and how dawn to them represents the worst. And there's, a, there's, there's you can take that a little bit further as well. I think because we're talking about dawn being a, a fresh start, yeah. new, new beginning. Um, and if and if that new beginning is simply more poignant misery, it speaks, I think, to the kind of inevitability of war and conflict. Yeah. Um, which I'm not sure is particularly um, clear in lots of the other conflict poems in the in the anthology is this idea that war war lasts. It's one of yeah. the only things that um, continues, uh, that, like all the way, wherever there is human humans. Yeah, yeah. Wherever, wherever humans have lived, that war has existed. Um, and so to, to believe that this, the war to end all wars, would be the war to end all wars, would be a naive and kind of, like we said, a, a, a hopelessly romantic notion. And uh, I think Owen was... Quite clearly that, aware yeah. of well aware of that notion, yeah, um, even you know in the midst of this this conflict, which was supposed to be the war to end all wars. Mm-hmm. And, and again, we have the ellipses at the end of that line, which I think supports <coughs> that interpretation of this idea that yeah. perhaps war is inevitable and will always continue mm-hmm. on. It's part of human nature. And you know the the, the second line of, of that stanza: "We only know war lasts, rain soaks, and clouds sag stormy." You know, the, the, uh, something about Wilfred Owen is he, he often refrains from using particularly um, flowery or language, or he doesn't always go into descriptive flourishes. And there's nothing here in particular that you could pick out, this evocative imagery or whatever. But I just like this phrase, we only know war lasts. Before the war, we might, in most situations, we feel like we know a lot of things. Someone knows they love their, their family, they know that they, um, they love their country, they know that they support... Uh, Manchester United, despite the fact they might be sick in the Premiership, whatever it is, they feel they know certain things. But war strips away all that certainty and leaves you with the bare facts of your existence. And for them, the bare facts of their existence are this. It's nothing to do with king and country, as we see in Bayonet Charge. It's that war lasts, possibly linked to Al's point, as in all war. War will always be there. But this war in particular lasts. It doesn't end. Rain soaks and clouds sag stormy. So this war isn't going anywhere. When it rains, you get soaked and you're going to be miserable and shivering for the rest of the day. And there's the clouds straight ahead, so it's only going to get worse. Worse. Yeah. That list of three is kind of like just a nail in the coffin after nail in the coffin after nail in the coffin. 
life sucks, it's going to get worse, and then again, it's going to get even worse. This poem is reinforcing this idea of a perpetual cycle of misery. Things are bad, and they're going to get worse, and nothing's happening to change this. And this was written by someone based on his experiences in the trenches. This is what it was like for him. Things were awful and only got worse. Mm -hmm. And I just like that little list of three there to just really drive that point home. In particular, the power of the phrase, we only know. And again, we've got the little bit of hope there, the collective pronoun, we, but we only know. That really is is an interesting, a really interesting... um, comparison with with bayonet charge i don't think i've really considered that before uh with the this idea of, of what of your identity and what you actually know to be true yeah um so he's kind of gone into this very uh he's fallen into kind of realism um and any 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 high-minded notions of of a king and honor human dignity legacy yeah. and bayonet charge again it's gone it's all about well we're here it's staying yeah. each day brings the same thing and, and then, all the, all these experiences, the rain and the clouds, the those gray, physical gray, needs, yeah, right? that's yeah. what they're uh, that's their, that's their whole experience, um, and that that kind of like that image of dawn is continued in the in the next line. We're talking about dawn massing in the east to melancholy army. So we saw the before um, that he describes the wind as as being as somewhat like a, a combatant that yeah, knifes them mercilessly um, and now we see that this kind of like militaristic semantic field um, and this theme throughout the poem is continues like a motif um, that the dawn is massing in the east of melancholy, melancholy army so instead of like we said the dawn bringing reprieve and hope and joy yeah. it's bringing like the next attack Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're massing, they're getting ready to go. Um, and then the next line, attacks once more in ranks on shivering ranks of grey. And again, it's this consistent barrage of just painful, aching... Misery. Misery, exactly, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's just... It, it is, And it says but that idea of it, it's something being incessant. It's that you can really feel that in this poem. It's something that's constant and impossible to escape. Completely impossible to escape. And that's part of what makes this poem so powerful. I mean, I don't know... So if any of, of you know, pupils listening to this, you've gone on some god-awful Duke of Edinburgh trip and you've had to go up halfway up some mountain and it's raining and it's freezing. When that happens to you, it feels like you never remember what it was ever like to be warm. It feels like you can't remember what it was like to be warm, even if it was like 30 minutes ago. And it feels like the suffering is endless. And that's like, maybe that's just me every time I go for, for a walk in the countryside. But when, it, when it's rainy, it feels like you can never remember what it was like to be warm. And for these soldiers, like, you know, we times that by, you know, a million, a billion, like this unimaginable pain and suffering. You know, they've been in these trenches for, a lot of them would have gone over in 1916. They've been there for a year, two years. And the only way they seem to have out of this situation is death or severe injury. Mm. And it, would, it doesn't take long for something to become your new reality and for what you thought you know to drift away. And I love the idea that in this poem, his preoccupation isn't with the German enemy. It isn't even with home. All he can think about is the weather. So primordial is the situation that what's the one thing that has the biggest impact on your survival? The weather. Yeah. Right? And if and it's raining. Like yeah, like those, those basic yeah. needs. And he's supposed to be, you know, this is, you know, 1916, 1917, front line of a war in this new age, this modern world, fight for Britain against Germany, these two great civilizations. He's worried about the weather because the weather is the biggest threat to his survival. That's all this is about just staying warm, staying alive. Um, and by, some, by the sheer grim perseverance of the human body and condition, he does survive. 
and nothing happens. This perpetual cycle of misery yeah. just continues on and on and on. Yeah, and this is kind of this idea is is brought into the next stanza um, where we see sudden successive flights of Bullet Street, this silence. Now we're moving into the fourth stanza of a poem about war and we're only just hearing about kind of enemy activity. Mm. And even those are described as less deadly than the air that shudders black with snow. And again, we're seeing this oxymoronic description of weather where mm. the dawn is described as poignantly miserable. Um, so the, the, the snow is descri- described as black. Um, so it's just pure imagery of, of pain and despair and hopelessness <coughs> and I, I think that <coughs> offers such an interesting contrast to uh, kind of the other romantic poets yeah, earlier in the anthology exactly. and that for them in the comfort of their lives it was kind of nature's this thing of beauty mm. but that's fine when you're going home to your mansion and you've, yeah. got, a, you've got a fire on the go and you've got all these people sit around listening to you reading poems yeah. when you're actually out there trying to survive in the weather it makes sense that you'd see it in a different light yeah, and then he, and again goes on to describe the uh, the sidelong flowing flakes that flock, pause, and renew. It's something that's constant, something that won't that, um, like won't leave them alone. Again, it's this idea of it's being incessant. And then he talks about the the um, the wind's nonchalance, just in the penultimate line there, um, which I think is an interesting another interesting way of describing the way that he his interaction with the weather first sees it. That the winds as being merciless. Now it, the wind is kind of it described as nonchalant. It's, which, it's, is, which is almost even worse. I mean, there you've got this idea that here's all these thousands, hundreds of thousands of men shivering, dying, yeah. partly because of the wind. The yeah. wind couldn't care less. Yeah. It's completely indifferent, insouciant. It doesn't matter to it. It will always be there, whereas they are but dust in the wind. Which links to this theme, I think, with this, this idea of dying faith, which I think we'll talk about a little bit later. But he's, it, it's... Like say, it's irrational to be angry at the wind, mm-hmm. um, just as it's irrational really to be angry at an earthquake or a volcano erupting or something like that, where where a natural event which can cause harm. However, what what is actually what's he railing against there? It's this idea that there's some kind of that there should be um, some kind of mercy from God, and it's just not coming. He, he's not only is the wind merciless, but it's nonchalant. Yeah. It's in the face of all this slaughter, it's casual. Yeah. It might almost be better to think of it as an enemy. At least then you can hate yeah. it as opposed to something yeah. that doesn't even care about you. Um, so just going, uh, looking at the fifth stanza, there's just two lines I want to pick out here. So the first is this, is, is the second line of the fifth stanza. We cringe in holes, back on forgotten dreams, and stare, snow-dazed. And it goes into the next line, deep into grass, your ditches. And I want to pick up out that line, back on forgotten dreams, because that's quite, for me, a sad subtle and haunting line from this poem so before the war may have started they may have had they may have had dreams about kind of what they were going to do about people they were going to marry lives they were going to lead things they're going to achieve in their career and as they've gotten out here that's obviously all washed away in the wind and in the merciless dicey winds that knived them they've forgotten about all of that so these quiet moments of reflection they they try and clutch after these dreams but these dreams are almost forgotten it's it's like a struggle to to find them, to because a dream is something you have when you have a, a peaceful sleep. It's something when you have a slumber that's safe and secure. It's very difficult to dream when you're in a situation where you think a bomb might go off at any moment. So you know he literally might not be able to dream, but then also he's he's struggling to remember what it was like before to have dreams, to have hopes. Because in this situation, they probably don't spend much time thinking about what life will be like after the war. Because one, that might be like tempting fate, and two. 
maybe on some level they think it's ridiculous to imagine life after the war because for them this is purgatory. This is never going to end. Nothing's going to happen. There's going to be no reprieve, no blissful ending. It's just going to go on forever and ever yeah. and ever. And I just like that line, back and forgotten dreams, forgotten dreams. Yeah. I think that for him represents everything they've they've lost, that grip on what they thought was reality that has now gone forever. There's also this kind of, I feel like Into the Next Sun just does the same thing. Um, where they remember what it was like to be to be home, mm-hmm. um, but it's also this idea that when it, everyone will have had this, where you you have a bad dream and you wake up and it's just a flood of relief. Yeah, you know, it's like oh, thank God that's not real, yeah. like that's not happened, or you know, I'm not I've not just been brutally murdered or whatever. Um, however, with for them, they they've almost their dreams are positive and they wake up and instead of feeling relief. They feel um, pure dread. Yeah. Um, they've, they've come back to that poignant misery of dawn. Mm-hmm. So they wake up only to pain. And it's only in these dreams that they find some kind of reprieve. Um, so the, the line starts on this stanza that slowly our, ghost drags, our ghosts drag home, glimpsing the sunk fires glozed with crusted dark red jewels. And again, they're talking about this idea that, well, they're ghosts, again, their spirits or their memories, their consciousness, where they are when they're dreaming. They drag home. They're not the same. They're not the same as they were. They're broken men. Um, they, they, well, to be fair, many of them left as boys. Mm-hmm. And now they are, they have experiences that people living today in this society will, will never experience. And, and they've had that in, in a couple of years. It might even be to the people back home and to the people in Britain, they are but ghosts. They yeah. aren't really seen or treated as real people. They're just kind of like this afterthought. Yeah. Something that was once real and which perhaps we still talk about, but on some level we don't think really exists. Or, we or, don't treat or, maybe, with... or maybe more that, you, that something that we can never really really relate to. Like we're sitting here uh, comfortably talking about war poetry mm-hmm. and we're just as ignorant as anybody else who's, mm-hmm. um, who hasn't been there and experienced it. And again, we talked about Owen's credibility. I feel like that's something really to keep in mind here. Um, he talks about there, like our ghost drag home. He's a, he's a conscious that the men who he's who he's had this shared experience with, they're not the same as they were when they when they left. And there's there's something about them that has changed forever. If they go on to survive, it will change them. If all it will kill, or they'll die. I suppose you could say it's just their remains. Nice. Thank you. That's a reference to Remains, another one of the poems in the anthology. You may or may not have picked up on that uh, genius little <laughs> wordplay there. Continue. Uh, anyway, so the, the, the imagery to describing home is, is very comfortable. We're talking about sunk fires glowed with, with crusted dark red jewels. Again, with, with this image of, the, of coal in a fire and comparing that to dark red jewels. With, I mean, the, the, the simple comparison is that it's something that's valuable. It's something that's beautiful. It's something that's desirable. And it's something that's um, again entirely out, it's entirely out of reach, yeah, completely unattainable. Um, and then it goes on to say, talks about innocent mice rejoice. The house is theirs. There's in. There's nobody else there. Um, they can't go back there. The, the shutters and doors are closed. On us, the doors are closed. And again, that that image of home, of peace, of the kind of like the simple things, the. Um, it reminds me of the ordinary pains from war photographer this mm-hmm. idea that like the stuff you know the, the stuff that you take for granted but which is the the true treasure of of living in a peaceful relatively peaceful society um for them that's that it's they're closed off they're cut out there's the, there's no way back for them and they instead have to turn back Boy says we turn back to our dying but again that idea of that, that we and i think that's a really interesting um 
bit of repetition throughout this poem is this idea of we, we, we. And I think, again, there is that glimmer of, of positivity in this poem. And I think Wilfred Owen, I think all the men, many of the men who experienced at least this 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 horrendous ordeal, one thing they do speak about, and it's something that's um, outlined in the Peter Jackson documentary as well, is a sense of togetherness they had, the sense of unity, that no matter how bad things got, they did have a bond with one another living through this that is indescribable. And that's something that, it would be an interesting question. Was this a conscious decision by Wilfred Owen to emphasise this unity? Or is it something that's so ingrained within that's become such a part of his identity that it kind of slips through? He, he is more inclined to speak about a we than an I because this experience is something that has happened to all of them, not just him. He's almost lost his identity. He is one of a number of the shivering ranks of grey. They've lost this uniqueness and they now are united by this ordeal. Mm. Um and we do, again, we turn back to our dying. I think that's an interesting line in terms of it seems to be implying some kind of um, some free will there or decision, or is it perhaps merely resignation and acceptance? I, resi- I, I read it as, re- as resignation, definitely. Um, Important to remember that Wilfred Owen, though, did choose to go back to World War I and, in a sense, did choose to turn back to his dying. Mm. Um, at the time, Siegfried Sassoon, one of the, his close friends and a famous poet, was um, had been had gone back to the front, then returned again, and it's very much believed that Wilfred Owen felt a a, a pressure for their t- the importance of a poet uh, to be on the front lines and to be experiencing the war and to be there, um, kind of chronicling this this ordeal. Mm. Um, and he, he felt that pressure on himself, and he went back there to to witness and to that's experience quite, that. That's quite a cynical take on it, I'd say. That it's almost like, well, I, I need my poems to be. To be, uh, I think I think he believed at that stage credible. in the in the artistic importance of of someone being able to live through this and explain exactly what happened. Mm. I think part of it will have been his loyalty as an officer to the men he commanded. And I think that's something both him and Siegfried Sassoon kind of wrote about that importance of kind of taking care of the men who were under them. Um, but I think also this importance of there needing to be something to come out of this, people needing to know what was happening, people yeah. needing to know the reality of it. And he did turn back to his dying, you know, uh, unintentional, you know, foreshadowing of his own death there, quite sadly. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, so in the next answer, we have, again, um, this idea of, of love and of God and that kind of disappearing amongst... Yeah. This environment. So you're just going the, to talk us through that, Al? Well, the, this one, I think, is probably the most obscure stanza in the poem where he... He describes this this dying faith, um, faith in God, faith in humanity, um, faith again. We talk about he describes themselves like faith in their own um, their own futures, their own pasts, like who they are, their own identities. So since we believe not otherwise can kind fires burn, now ever sun smile true on child or field or fruit. For God's invincible spring, our love is made afraid. So on the face of it, that he, he's not saying much there. It's almost like just a list of positive images and then this idea that God's invincible spring, our love is made afraid. Um, now, if you could interpret that line, to me, that's saying, um, we're talking about this poem is about weather um, and it's about being like fighting in the winter, fighting in these really horrible conditions. Um, so the, 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 the idea of spring, of an, of an end to that, a thawing of that ice and a thawing of tension, a thawing of war, um, seems... Um, almost impossible, but also the God's invincible spring. We're talking about the this image of heaven, um, of eternity. This Christian idea that once you know you go through the the true um, trials and tribulations of life, you will be as long as you you know uh, navigate that ethical obstacle course. Um, 
sufficiently, you will be rewarded with with a kind of like life in paradise um, for eternity. And that seems to be something that that for them um, that that love and that faith is being made afraid. It's like they can't, they almost can't believe that anymore. They feel like that's not a not realistic and having having been exposed to this kind of malevolence both in terms of the war itself but also again the being left out in that kind of that sense of abandonment um that faith isn't there anymore so therefore not loath we lie out here therefore we're born um and for love of god seems dying so they they think that their um their whole existence has been to to be here in this moment in this war um which again if you think about like if your whole existence is to be in a place where that you find utterly meaningless that must must um kind of impose a quite heavy psychological burden um and then that final line for love of god seems dying is where he finally kind of um spells it out essentially what what this stands is saying is that god you're talking about like Britain or the people or their commanding officers, they've abandoned these soldiers and now they feel that God himself has abandoned them. Yeah. Like they had that true sense of abandonment, true sense of loneliness. Um, and again, that complete hopelessness um, of being in that situation. Yeah, I think in many ways this is, I think, considering the context and you kind of the importance of religion at the time and for someone Wilfred Owen who himself was, was quite religious and kind of look at one stage like he was going to join um, the church. Um, a really, really sad and depressing stanza. And I think for me, it brings back to my mind that second stanza and that image of um, of men being caught in the brambles of barbed wire. Mm. And I could imagine, imagine seeing one of your friends caught in barbed wire in the middle of no man's land. And you can hear him screaming for help. But if you go over the top and try and help him, you're going to be shot. So you don't help that friend. And you've got two choices at that point. If your friend is severely wounded, now there are rats in that field, and there's every chance that, that, that when night comes, those rats are going to start chewing his body, whatever it might be. So is, that, is what the best thing to do to shoot him? Now imagine being religious in this situation. You know, if you ever study philosophy of religion, there's a very important issue called the problem of evil. How can a God exist when evil happens that benefits no one? Who does it benefit? for that man to be there in barbed wire, bleeding slowly to death, and to have his friends confronted with the decision to either let him die a more painful death later on, or to shoot him there in that moment. So no wonder love of God seems dying. To witness such things, to witness such barbarism and pointless suffering. We talked about this you know, cycle of misery and suffering in this poem, but underneath it all is its futility. It achieves nothing, it accomplishes nothing. This pain is a footnote to, to nothing. So no wonder love of God seems dying and no wonder people become disillusioned. And how could love in any sense exist in that environment? And one of the funny things is that armies and both armies, the English and the German army, try to commandeer religion for their own benefit. They would have um, uh, company chaplains who would give sermons before battle to give soldiers faith on their belt buckles. They had expressions. I think the German, the one in the German belt buckle was if, uh, if God be for us, who can be against us? And you know, these armies try to repurpose and commandeer that the language of religion to kind of inspire more devotion and certainty, determination among the troops. And that would make religion seem like such a hollow lie when you see someone talk about, right, we're fighting for our God. We're fighting for, you know, our country. Both of these were Protestant nations. Yeah, but most, most German soldiers were Protestants. Nearly all of the, most of the English soldiers would have been Protestants. They had the same God. Yet here they are killing each other. 
Now, how can God exist if that's the case? How can God let his own servants butcher each other for nothing? Um, and I think that's where that kind of that cynical, depressed, nihilistic tone comes from, really. Um, yeah. Yeah. And that carries over into the next hour. Our, our energy is waning now as we get through this poem. So <laughs> yeah. It kind of saps you. It, it, it? does, yeah. but that's because it, it, it's so. It's so powerfully written and that, that final stanza we see, a li- we see a tone of aggression or at least anger come through here in that first line in the final stanza his frost will fasten on this mother than us so now he's attributing the weather and what's suffering and the, well, the suffering they're experiencing to God mm. his frost who's that controls the weather who's that is supposed to have have you know, you know, you know domain over all the world mm. God so it's his frost that will fasten on this mud and us his, his weather is hurting us and it's, I think that line as well, that use of, of sibilance, it's like his frost will fasten on this mud and us, and it's that kind of hissing, like spitting slithering. Well, yeah, but also this this image of it, something that rolls across the land. It's something that's um, that's omnipotent. It's not it's not just a it's not something like the frost isn't just something that happens. It's something that's that's conscious, something that's conscious and sentient, and it's something that um, kind of like slithers and slides its way across everybody and across everything, and that that kind of like implies some kind of force driving it. So I just want to talk about the last few, well, the last kind of three thoughts in this poem, really. And it's pause. So the idea of this bearing party, they're bearing these body. They pause over half known faces. All their eyes are nice, but nothing happens. So let's just think about this. So bearing parties would, after any kind of large confrontation, they would bury all the soldiers they could get, the ones they could get hands on, mm-hmm. um, in terms of, you know, there would be some people who'd be so far out in no man's land, the bodies would just have to decompose. But the ones they could get hands on, they would bury. So they pause over half-known faces. So first of all, let's look at that, that verb pause. That suggests that it is a momentary stop. Mm-hmm. So let's say that they're looking at someone they know who was in their trench. They pause. In a normal situation in life, you might say a prayer, you might kind of like, you might cry, whatever it might be. They merely momentarily stop, but they continue because this same situation is going to keep happening again and again and again because they are in a cycle of misery. This is not a unique circumstance. This is par for the course. So they only pause. So again, that verb pause suggests that they're going to continue because this is part of a cycle. And this phrase, half known faces. And to me, this begs the question, well, is it that they don't know this person that well and they saw them in the, tr- the trench? Or is it actually that the nature of this war means they never truly get to know one another at all? Because the, the version of themselves that's here in this, in, this, in this war isn't the real them. Or is it maybe that it is the real them, but they never really had the chance to get to know one another because they were always so worried about survival and so freezing, you can never have a meaningful conversation. So why are these faces half known? Is it perhaps the faces, you know, you know kind of has been so dramatically uh, changed by the injury they've perceived, you wouldn't even recognise it. And that it's grotesquely de- deformed. And the point then, is, I think the point is, regardless, it's a, it's a terrible situation. And it's almost like it's obscene to any kind of like modern sensibility to say that, uh, like you said, I mean, you, you said that if in, the, in a normal circumstance of a death, there would be emotion, there would be some kind of maybe ceremony, but there would actually would be something that took, took place over a yeah. couple of weeks, not like that one pause and one then it's pause. done. And, it's, and again, these are young men, these are young people who have, who have, um, who have died and it's that pure tragedy um, and is only compounded by the almost lack of recognition. And I, I love the ambiguity in the next little clause there. All their eyes are ice. 
And the funny thing here is, you know, is he referring to the corpses and the kind of the the, the, the idea that these, these faces aren't moving, they're kind of like frozen because life has left them or perhaps, you know, the weather has kind of gotten at them. But also the people who themselves, the bearing party, are their eyes like ice now because they have removed emotion, they've removed that which made them human, that which made them soft and knowable and lovable. They've had to kind of expunge that from their souls in order to survive. And then there's that final line in the poem, Wilfred Owen just signing off with, but nothing happens. But nothing happens because you, the reader in 1918, you didn't stop the war. This cycle happened again and again and again and no one's doing a damn thing about it. And that leads us back to the name of the poem, Exposure. Exposing the truth of what's going really happened, really happening to these boys. That they've been exposed to the worst elements, to the worst of humankind, to the worst of war. And no one's doing anything about it. And I think that's such a powerful way for him to sign off this poem. Yeah. And again, I think his his death, not only a, what, a year later when we're writing this, yeah. um, almost justifies that message, uh, that this idea of it being, um, being meaningless, being tragic, being um, futile. Uh, he, he not only went through this whole um, process of witnessing it, but he, he paid the ultimate price as well. Absolutely. So we, we, we've talked quite a lot about structure here in terms of repetition of certain lines, in terms of the opening and, and, and closing um, kind of images. So I think we're just going to briefly talk to you about uh, some notes in the rhyme of this poem and how that enforces the message. Yeah. And that will be all from us then. Yeah. Um, so this is, this is quite a quick point, but just something that I think is really important to, to recognise in this poem. And, and when we're talking about form and structure, um, especially when it comes to rhyme scheme, that's probably something that we don't go into much detail mm-hmm. on this podcast, but it is important here. Um, so if we look at the rhyme scheme, is A, B, B, A, C. Um, so the first and fourth ri- uh, lines rhyme, um, the second and third um, rhymes line and the, uh, lines rhyme, sorry, um, and then the final line does doesn't rhyme with anything. Um, and what he does, and so there, there's a, this kind of like a, a hint of order mm-hmm. because it's something that's consistent all the way through. That, that there's that rhyme scheme is consistent all the way through the poem. However, the, the nature of the rhymes are important. So you can call them half rhymes or para rhymes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we look at um, nifus and nervous, um, silent and salient, wire and war, brambles, rumbles. You get the idea that they, they kind of rhyme, but it not quite. It suggests that rhyme, but it, it's yeah, not quite yeah. true. Right? And it's kind of, it, it's, it's quite stilted in that way mm-hmm. um, and I think you know, there's, there's lots of things you can say about when it comes to any kind of structural point whether it's Cesura and Jombaman um, rhyme scheme there's lot if you know the poem you can use those structural you can, points you to bend support. that to your way exactly yeah. yeah and for this for me um, this is talking about that kind of disorientation this idea of being um, of not quite being fully conscious of what's going on not quite being almost um, fully self-aware uh not understanding what's going on around them or, or truly being um, kind of having that clarity of thought. And I think that Owen, he probably felt that he didn't have that clarity of thought. Remember, he, was, he did suffer from PTSD um, and he was very... And I'm, I think the point I'm making is not he, these rhymes happened by accident because he wasn't thinking clearly. I think that he purposefully, whilst reflecting on his own situation, reflecting on his own experiences, wanted to show that almost stilted view of reality through the rhyme scheme of the poem and just uh, in terms of once you know the poem well you can really kind of 
attribute the right meaning to any points and form structure you want to make. For me, that consistency in the rhyme scheme throughout the poem again drives home the message that these soldiers and Wilfred Owen experience a perpetual cycle of misery where nothing happens and it remains the same. There is no exciting break. There is just the continuing um, tedium and agony of of basic survival. Yeah, and again, that can be extrapolated from their experience to the universal experience of the soldier yeah. and of war itself. Definitely. So, while perhaps not the cheeriest of podcasts, I think that should be to some degree helpful for you. Uh, so, we will thank you for joining us, English nerds. It's goodbye from me, Ted, and it's goodbye from me, Alex. Bye bye.